Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. There are many different religious views, and there are many faith traditions that embrace LGBTQ people. But the reality is there continue to be organizations, some of them very well-funded, some of them very well-connected, that are very determined and strategic in their efforts to use religion as a license to discriminate, and it continues to be a real problem. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simchat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Jean and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner as if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm on themselves. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states, and even some other countries, recognize that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available at outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there is a movement determined to put us firmly back in our place, as they would have it. Cake shops and florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at other minority groups. Just imagine it. A shop owner says, my religious liberty prevents me from serving black people or Jewish people, so go away. It's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course, there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes the law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone citing religious liberty discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? Does one take precedence over the other when equality and religious liberty come into conflict? This is the sixth part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. In earlier parts of this series, we were talking about how religious liberty and LGBTQ equality can coexist peacefully under the Constitution, but also how the guarantee of equality hasn't yet made LGBTQ people truly equal. On the last edition of Outcasting, Jenny and Lucas talked about the acceleration of the marriage equality movement starting in the early 1990s, when it began to look as though Hawaii might open up marriage to same-sex couples. 
1996, as the marriage equality movement was beginning to gain momentum, Congress enacted, and President Bill Clinton signed, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. DOMA did two things. First, it said that if any state legalized same-sex marriage, no other state had to recognize those marriages. That was a notable departure from the norm. When different sex couples got married in any state, every other state, with limited exceptions, automatically considered the couple married. So DOMA carved out a gay exception to that norm. DOMA also provided that the federal government would not recognize same-sex marriages, thus cutting same-sex couples off from the federal rights and benefits that come with marriage. And it wasn't until two Supreme Court cases, nearly 20 years later, the Windsor case in 2013 and the Obergefell case in 2015, that DOMA was finally declared unconstitutional, and same-sex couples had, at least in theory, marriage rights that were equal to those of different sex couples. But since then, as Jenny noted at the end of our last episode, self-identified Christian fundamentalists and other religious conservative legal and policy groups have continued to try to expand religious liberty rights at the expense of LGBTQ equality. Lucas and Jenny pick up the conversation there. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jenny. Thanks so much, Lucas. It's good to be here. Even now, there are still people and organizations trying to chip away at our rights to marriage equality. For example, by allowing discrimination in adoption. Tell us about that. Well, the area of adoption and foster care services is quite active right now, and I would say unfortunately so, because we're facing religion-related challenges in a number of different contexts. Right now in South Carolina, Lambda Legal is litigating in a situation where leadership of that state sought from the federal government special permission to use state and federal money to grant public money to religiously affiliated child welfare agencies that explicitly discriminate. So we have a lawsuit going on about that where the challenge is to both state leadership and also federal leadership that gave specific permission for religiously affiliated agencies to discriminate when they are performing the state function of child placing services. When there are children that are in state care, foster care, for whatever reason, the government has responsibility for finding an appropriate placement for that child. You have some religious agencies, religiously affiliated agencies, that explicitly will only engage with prospective foster parents that subscribe to the same religious beliefs as that agency. Now, there are some different perspectives on whether this kind of discrimination would be appropriate if you had an agency that's just working, say, within one parish, where all of the members go to the same church, and a child would be placed by one member of the church to another member of the church in a private context. But this is very different. This is when an agency has the contract to do these services for the government with public money, and the children that are being placed are children that are in state care. And it's a real problem because we know that a significantly disproportionate number of young people that are in the foster care system are in that system because they've been thrown out of their homes because of their transgender identity or their same-sex sexual orientation, or something about who they are that was considered to be unacceptable. And so they're in state care. And if you have an agency that is doing all of that work through a discriminatory religious lens, that means that those children 
are likely to have a pretty bad experience if the only places that they could be placed are in households that have promised that they share a discriminatory religious worldview that means that those young people are likely to have a bad time of course there's also the legal problem of government choosing to contract and use our public resources to take care of children that are in that are in state care and do it in a religious manner that should be understood to violate the Establishment Clause that says, you know, there's supposed to be a wall of separation between church and state. So the litigation that we're doing in South Carolina tests those principles. Now, there are a couple of other examples that I'll give you. One quickly to mention is that in the state of Texas, uh, the Trump administration has chosen to contract with a Catholic agency to take care of unaccompanied minor refugee children, children who on their own make their way to the United States from another country are seeking asylum status or refugee status. The only agency that has the contract in this particular part of Texas provides those services in a religious manner and rejected a lesbian couple that we represent told them that they were not going to be eligible to receive a refugee child, to be a foster parents to a refugee child, because their family, quote, did not mirror the holy family. Now, agencies can do various sorts of work according to religious rules, but not on behalf of the government with public money, and not if the way they go about it causes harm to the young people that are put in their care. So that's another lawsuit that we're engaged in. And the third one I'll mention is very much in the public spotlight right now because it is in front of the Supreme Court. This is about whether the city of Philadelphia is allowed to have non-discrimination rules that say we only will do contracts with child-placing agencies that agree not to discriminate based on sexual orientation. We, the city of Philadelphia, don't discriminate. And when we are taking care of young people, we want to do it in a non-discriminatory manner. That means no discrimination against young people in our care and no discrimination against adults who come forward and would like to be foster or adoptive parents. We want to maximize the pool of potential parents for the young people in our care, and we're not going to perform that function in a discriminatory manner. Well, there's an agency that had a contract, and according to their rules, they refused to work with same-sex couples as prospective parents, and when they were denied the continuation of a contract based on that non-discrimination rule, they sued, claiming a religious freedom right to have government money and perform that government function, but to do it in a religion-based discriminatory manner. And the Supreme Court has taken that case up. So this issue is very much roiling in public conversation, and it's roiling in the courts, and it's a very important test of whether the Establishment Clause principle is going to continue to have strength as a protection of all of us that the government should not be practicing religion, endorsing religion, or designating its government functions to religious organizations that then act based on religion in a way that is discriminatory against some people. So it sounds as if no matter what legal victories we achieve, a lot of people are still trying to undermine our equality, some of them based on religious beliefs. 
this is a continuation of the conversation and or the struggle that we've had from earliest days in our modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. There have been religious voices opposing us from the beginning, and those voices have changed their focus sometimes, but they are still active. I think it's important that we keep in mind that there are many different religious views and there are many faith traditions that embrace LGBTQ people and support and celebrate same-sex couples and our marriages. But the reality is there continue to be organizations, some of them very well-funded, some of them very well-connected, that are very determined and strategic in their efforts to use religion as a license to discriminate, and it continues to be a real problem. We'll move on to the Bostock employment discrimination case in a sec, but you mentioned Justice Kennedy several times. Tell us about the importance of his role in these landmark LGBTQ cases. Well, Justice Kennedy, as it happened, was the author of this series of cases recognizing equality rights and liberty rights for same-sex couples and more broadly recognizing lesbian, gay, bisexual people as having the same important constitutional rights to liberty, to privacy, to due process that other people have. What's particularly notable, and this became, I think, clearer and clearer as we went from Romer to Lawrence to Windsor to Obergefell, that he brought into his writing beautiful, respectful language. It was really the mirror opposite of what happened in the Bowers versus Hardwick case, where the majority opinion was so contemptuous. It was so vicious in talking about gay people, LGBT people. And Justice Kennedy really provided an antidote to that disrespect in the language that he used to talk about who we are and to give respect to our lives and our dignity. One of the interesting things about Justice Kennedy, I believe this is probably still true, but it certainly has been known about him that he was raised Catholic and was a practicing Catholic and approached his work as a judge with a sense of respect for the person and the the dignity of the person, which is a concept that's quite important in, in Catholic teaching. And it's very interesting, I think, that when he was a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, he he was part of one of the decisions that upheld the anti-gay military policy. There was lots of reason to think that he would be certainly not a friend to LGBT people when he was elevated to the Supreme Court. His development as a jurist in this particular area of law, I think, came as a surprise to lots of people. But I think it It's consistent with the Catholic teachings that he grew up with that looked at the dignity of the person. And so that is an interesting theme that emerges from these cases. And he talks about the importance of marriage, the freedom to marry, and the the ability to form relationships in a family as part of the dignity of the person. It's really quite important. I will note that that approach to thinking about the person and the dignity of the person does not play out the same way for him in the abortion rights area. Some of his decisions there are mixed, but um, it does seem as though there's not exactly the same. It's a more, that's a more complicated issue for him, apparently. Now, the last decision in the suite of decisions that he wrote is the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision that, that gave us this 
exact test between equality and rights rights of same-sex couples against discrimination when it's in tension with somebody else's religious objection to that equality. That was the the case about the Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The first part of the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision cites the case from decades ago, the Piggy Park case about race discrimination and the attempt to justify race discrimination, racial segregation with religious beliefs, where the Supreme Court said back in the 60s, no, your religious rights do not go that far. Justice Kennedy cited that Piggy Park decision in Masterpiece, and that's very important. Unfortunately, from our perspective, he didn't just decide the case on those grounds, and it seemed to leave the door open for a lot more arguing about religion and about speech rights when they're motivated by religion. And that's part of why we continue to be in this chapter now of these cases percolating in quite a few courts. So Justice Kennedy, I think his series of decisions was was very important. It did not end with quite the crescendo and quite the clarity that the decisions gave us up to the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. Online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Lucas is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Land Illegal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Justice Kennedy retired at a time when he knew that he'd be replaced by a new justice appointed by President Trump, presumably a more conservative justice who might be less likely, and maybe much less likely, to join the court's liberals to support rulings advancing LGBTQ equality. Did it strike you as odd that he retired when he did? Well, I have to admit, not particularly odd. I mean, recall that Justice Kennedy was a conservative justice, and the series of rulings recognizing the equality rights and liberty rights of same-sex couples and LGBTQ people more broadly were somewhat unusual in his jurisprudence as a whole. He was appointed by a Republican president, and It doesn't seem that shocking, that surprising, that he decided to step down at a time when he knew a Republican president would select his likely successor. And in fact, as it happens, the judge tapped to take that seat or to be nominated for that seat was a former clerk of his, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So whether that was an accident or not an accident, we'll never know, but it was not terribly surprising. So let's turn to the Bostock case from June 2020, in which the Supreme Court ruled that LGBTQ people are protected from discrimination in employment. Tell us about that. Well, this was a very important decision, and it was it's something that we celebrated and we will continue to celebrate because this was a moment of a very conservative Supreme Court agreeing with a quite conservative legal argument that we at Lambda Legal and our partners at our sibling LGBT legal groups had been developing in the lower courts for quite a long time, actually, probably two decades at least. The idea is that 
the existing federal law prohibiting employment discrimination bars workplace discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, or sex. And it has been our position for quite a long time that if you simply apply the words on the page, or in particular the words, no discrimination because of sex, that has to protect LGBT people. It has to forbid discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity because it's impossible for a judge or for any of us to consider sexual orientation or gender identity without reference to the person's sex. The concepts just don't exist without reference to a person's sex and also to how that person's sex is perceived by somebody who would be treating them adversely in the workplace. Now, let's be clear. This is a textualist, kind of literal, read the words on the page way of interpreting and applying a statute. And we think of that as a conservative approach to interpreting a statute. Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, was an ardent proponent of that approach. And Justice Gorsuch, also uh, a recent appointee to the court, takes that approach. Justice Kavanaugh often speaks approvingly of that approach. So as we were developing our understanding of how to tackle workplace discrimination against LGBT people, recognizing that the court had been pushed to the right by a series of appointments by presidents who wanted the court to be much more conservative, we realized that this was an appropriate way to think about how to interpret the statute, how to ask courts to apply the statute, and ultimately it was successful. So the Bostock decision actually is a decision, one decision in three different cases. Two of those cases were brought by gay men who claimed to the court that they had been fired when their sexual orientation came to be known to their employer. The other case was brought by a transgender woman who after years of successful good work as a funeral home director was let go when she informed her boss that subject to her doctor's recommendation and quite a long time of preparing that she needed to come to work as her true authentic self as a woman. And the boss did not approve of that and said her employment was going to end at that point. So these three cases were taken together by the Supreme Court and presented the related questions of sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination under this existing federal law, which we refer to as Title VII, that forbids sex discrimination in the workplace. When the oral arguments were held in the fall of 2019, we had some beginning glimmers of hope that this might be successful because in particular, there were questions from Justice Gorsuch that indicated that he might well agree with our theory. Of course, it's always a risky business to predict what the court will do based on questions at oral argument, but we were quite hopeful. And when the decision did come down, it was written by Justice Gorsuch, and it was a six to three decision agreeing with us that the workplace discrimination in all three of these cases was actionable. In other words, people could bring a claim under the existing federal law for workplace discrimination. So it's a, it's a conservative decision, but an incredibly important decision. Now, as you said, Bostock was based on statutory grounds, not the Constitution. 
What can we tell from that? Well, uh, the, the cases were brought under the statute, and the court read the statute and applied the statute. Some of what that means is that employers who disagree could raise constitutional arguments, and in particular, religious liberty arguments based on the Constitution. And if they prevail, then those constitutional rights, if you'll excuse the term, would trump the statutory rights that the workers have. And actually, this is something that Justice Gorsuch's decision calls out toward the end of the opinion, after the very exacting logical application of the words and and the statute to reach the decision that these workers have claims. At the end of the decision, he notes that the decision does not address whether there might be religious liberty defenses that an employer might have or if there might be other defenses that an employer would have. So one part of the response is that there could be defenses that were not presented in in those cases that are yet to be decided in future cases. Something else that it means is that if Congress disagreed with what the Supreme Court did, Congress could change the statute. That's one of the big differences between rights protected by a law or by a statute. The legislature can change them if it disagrees with a court interpretation of what the statute covers. When it comes to the Constitution, changing that is quite difficult. If a court, and the Supreme Court in particular, interprets the Constitution in a particular way, and we disagree with that, then our answer our methods for changing that require either a change in the court or the quite challenging process of amending the Constitution. In its other major LGBTQ cases, what legal grounds has the court cited? Well, we've had this series of quite important cases involving constitutional rights. So the first of those uh, decisions, the Romer decision decided back in 1996, was based on the Equal Protection Clause. That was a huge breakthrough because it was really the first time the Supreme Court recognized us as lesbian, gay, and bisexual people as having equal protection rights under the Constitution. In the Lawrence versus Texas case, the Supreme Court decided that the criminal laws against adult same-sex relationships, the sodomy laws, were unconstitutional because those laws limited same-sex couples' rights of freedom, of of liberty, as protected by the Due Process Clause. The relationship between the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause is quite important. This is something that Justice Kennedy wrote about in the Lawrence case and also in the marriage cases, recognizing when there's a liberty right, a, a freedom right that's protected by the Due Process Clause, and some people have that right and other people don't. Marriage is a great example of that then those two constitutional protections are connected to each other. They're entwined with each other. That everybody should have the same equal liberty is a way to capture that idea. And Justice Kennedy wrote about that in the Obergefell case, uh, vindicating the freedom to marry for same-sex couples nationwide. Thank you so much, Jenny. We're out of time for now, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks, Lucas. That's it for the sixth part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, 
Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.